This is Don Carpenter, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned into episode 4.10 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance, the goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I hope everybody's having a good, safe February out there, Uh, hopefully in deep powder. I know not everywhere in the western United States is deep right now. But I hope everybody's making the best of what they got, where they got it. I certainly am excited to share this episode with you guys. I've interviewed Sarah Carpenter of the American Avalanche Institute. I've interviewed Don Sheriff of the American Avalanche Institute. And I've also interviewed Rod Newcomb, founder of the American Avalanche Institute, all while traveling through one of my favorite places to visit, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, Don't go there, there's already too many people. But uh, in this episode, we highlight uh, uh, a great interview with Don Carpenter. So we kind of round out the trifecta of, of the current owners of the American Avalanche Institute. We have a great conversation about uh, some of the work that AI has done with military special operations groups and doing some training with those folks to better forecast in a, in a winter environment, both weather and avalanches, and just how to, how to operate more efficiently in that winter environment. Uh, it's a great conversation. Through, through talking about the, the work that they've done with training with special operations groups, we start talking about the importance of, of teamwork, attributes of partners, and the importance of debriefing. Um, we then talk a bit about what constitutes good travel techniques and how to implement those in, in the avalanche world. Uh, we also talk about some of the new continuing education opportunities that not only the AAI folks are offering, but um, other avalanche education providers, I think, are beginning to operate offer these um, continuing ed uh, uh, specialized programs in the avalanche realm. Um, so super excited to share this episode with you. Um, first, I want to thank my sponsors, of course, TAS by MND, a huge supporter of the avalanche community at large, as well as uh, the, the folks that are putting out really the best product within the remote avalanche control system game. Um, they've been around the longest, and I'm sure you've seen some of these products out, whether they're on the highways or in ski areas. Of course, the Gazex, Daisy Bell Systems, um, Gazflex, Obelex, not to, not to forget Obelex. Um, great remote avalanche control systems that are being in, implemented all over the world. Um, so check those guys out. 
on the internet if you want to learn more about Gazex. Uh, go to tas.fr. There's an English version there as well. And you can see what cool offerings they have um, that may or may not affect your daily life. But certainly people that are traveling over Teton Pass, which we talk a little bit about uh, the Tetons in this interview, certainly those people have, have probably seen or heard of the Gazex systems up on the pass and the Obelex systems um, in the Hobax. Our other big sponsor, Ten Barrel Brewing, couldn't do this without you guys. Check out their Beer Cat tour. How cool is this? They took a snow cat, they put a pub on a snow cat, and they take it to different local ski areas and they give you beer. What could be better? Skiing and beer. Um, I think if you're in the Idaho area, especially North Idaho, uh, within the next couple weeks, which is the second half of February 2020, um, check those out. Check out check out uh, the, the schedule of events on Ten Barrels website because the beer cat is probably coming to a local ski hill near you. Thanks, Ten Barrel, for all your support. All right, well, let's dive right in with our feature presentation, our interview with Don Carpenter. Here we go. And Don Carpenter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Don, I was hoping you could introduce yourself, just tell us about your background in the snow and avalanche world, guiding, forecasting, education. My name is Don Carpenter. I live here in Victor, Idaho. And uh, like many people, I, I came to the Tetons in 93 for a winter of skiing and that, you know, rolled into two, three winters. Um, and, you know, my intro to avalanches was um, the novice stage of not even knowing what I didn't know. Ignorance is bliss. And, uh, you know, heading into the backcountry with very little knowledge. Um, and uh, was fortunate to get some good early training and mentors early on. And then, you know, working in the field, my early career was with Knowles in the winter and mountaineering program. And so those winter courses would have been locally in the, you know, Tetons and other ranges of Idaho and Northwest Wyoming. And then uh, from there, transitioned into guiding. Um, in Alaska and, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And, and then in 2009, my wife, Sarah, Don Sheriff, and myself, we bought, um, the American Avalanche Institute from Rod Newcomb and, um, have been doing that ever since. All right. And so, and how did Rod must've been a big mentor of yours coming up through the game there in the Tetons? Yeah. You know, I was, I was stepping into working for AAI towards the tail end. And mm -hmm. I mean, I did have the opportunity to work with Rod and, uh, I mean, the, the, the historical knowledge and, um, yeah, being able to spend time in the mountains with him is, is, is amazing. Sure. Yeah. Um, where'd you grow up? Huh? I grew up in upstate New York. Okay. Ski, uh, ski in there. We lived more in the kind of rolling hill country, uh, more honestly Nordic skiing. Uh -huh. We'd go skiing a couple weeks a year, but uh, you know, I moved out west to you know have those bigger mountains nearby. Right, and I'm sure you got it here in the Tetons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, any any memories of kind of early skiing in the backcountry here, and, and kind of what 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 were you thinking about? What was in your head as you were rolling around the hills of of the Tetons? Well, like I said, it was you know more in the ignorance is bliss mm-hmm. early on. I mean, I, I obviously knew avalanches existed, but I didn't know much about them. Um, I remember, yeah, that first one of my early memories was. Uh, actually on my first avalanche course with rod as an instructor and we were out to the south of teton pass and we we experienced a big big collapse uh, i think rod was in front and he he didn't feel it but you know this one you, you don't need a lot of training to know that's a that's a bad thing mm-hmm. and uh and we let rod know we'd had this collapse um we were in low angle terrain no uh you know, no, no hazard, but, um, it got all over, it got our attention for sure. Got the hackles up. It did. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I'm stoked to have you on the show. We're kind of completing the, the trifecta of the AI owner group here. Um, and I was hoping to hone in a little bit on some of American Avalanche Institute's role in teaching courses to military teams. Um, I know you have some background with that, um, and something I'm, I'm super interested in and I'm sure our listeners are too. So maybe talk for a little bit about the programs that you run with the military teams for the U S government. Yeah. So we've had various military teams coming to train with us. Um, that was actually some of the work I did when Rod was still, uh, running AAI, um, working with some military teams so that it goes back a ways. And, uh, and then we've had basically repeat um, business from a lot of these teams and it, there are relationships that, that we're proud of it really proud to work with these teams. Most of them are in the special operations category and, and they're common for, um, you know, snow and avalanche training, just basic winter mountain travel. Some of the teams are coming for weather forecasting training. So we work with Jim Woodmancy for that specific training. And I, I work with Woody in the field a lot. Um, so yeah, I mean, the courses are a lot of fun to work. Great. It's mostly, mostly men, some great guys. Um, these guys come with a, uh, a really wide background. Um, you know, some of them may have grown up in the mountains and are, are good skiers. We've had guys from the Southeast that coming to Jackson, Wyoming is one of the first time they've seen snow mm. ever. So we're, you know, working from the ground up, just get, getting them basic ski and travel skills. Um, and then, and then basic snow and avalanche training. Okay. And how long will you spend with most of these programs? It, you know, so it, it varies, um, most five days on the short end and upwards of two weeks on the long end. Wow. Um, usually a couple days of skiing at the resort just to get the ski legs under them. Uh, a couple days of more just backcountry ski training mm-hmm. and then a full, um, you know, full week or so of avalanche training uh, and, and often some winter camping thrown in there as well. So you mentioned mostly special forces. So we're talking like um, Navy SEAL or what, what are we talking here? Green so Beret? We've worked with, um, there's a, b- believe it or not, a, a U.S. Air Force um, special weather teams. Mm. 
So we've worked with a bunch of them, uh, Air Force Pararescue. Um, we've worked with General Marine Corps and, um, and Army Rangers. Um, maybe you could speak to the kind of cohesion of these teams and how they operate and how you've seen some of the teamwork play out in maybe a new environment to them. Yeah, I mean, that that is the most striking thing working with these guys they, with their job description they they have to be ready and able to operate in a huge variety of of environments and you know a year or two ago we had a team here training in you know in the winter environment and their next they were leaving within weeks to be deployed to you know to Africa where mm-hmm. they're I mean they're going to be in a completely different environment so they're constantly training and then getting deployed, and they're basically doing one or the other, training or or on a deployment. And um, you know, so we're working really hard to give them skills and training that they may not use for a year. They may never use it, uh, but if they do, you know, it's the real deal. It's a different context than your average backcountry skier. Sure, absolutely. And. Uh, so it's I, I, we love that challenge of uh, you know trying to customize the training for their needs for um, different missions they may be going on into a mountain environment and uh, it, 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 they're awesome courses to work. Sounds like a really neat program. Any any outcomes you've heard about? Like have, have these teams put stuff into practice that they've learned here from AI and the instructor teams here? Yeah, we did hear of a group that had come here and. Uh, some at some point within a few years they were they were deployed in Afghanistan and uh a team they were they were advising another team about a deployment into a remote valley and they they essentially from a remote location advised against moving into that valley and within a day or so a a village within that valley was was wiped out by an avalanche and so they were using you know the basic avalanche forecasting to to make a no-go decision mm. and uh yeah yeah it was so that's that's probably the most uh concrete example we've gotten sure. and uh yeah um it seems like just the it just training in a new environment for these guys is valuable mm-hmm. a challenging and new environment yeah yeah seems like everything's constantly changing for them probably with various deployments around the world so for sure yeah yeah um anything that you've learned from from working with these teams so i I was initially surprised at how challenged some of these guys were in a winter environment Uh, but i think that's because i'm i'm so used to traveling in a winter environment that it's you know fairly second nature to me and um I got the chance, you know, we've developed relationships with a lot of these guys, become friends with some of them because they've come back year after year. And uh, and I was visiting one of these guys out in California on a road trip Sarah and I were on, and uh, and he took me surfing. And um, the tables were turned. And, uh, you know, he, he took, we, we stood at the stood at the beach looking at the break and uh he turned to me as we paddled out and said, I'm going to be honest with you, I think it's going to be hard getting outside. And I got completely completely work getting outside barely got outside the break and then got washed back in and got pummeled ended up on shore exhausted and um you know that was kind of the learning i've had from these guys is that 
they're just in a new environment that they aren't used to and it's it's challenging it's exhausting and uh it was good to get the tables turned on me going surfing with my good friend Sundance out in California. Right. Maybe no matter how physically fit or mentally fit you are, like you put yourself in a new environment and there's going to be personal growth that comes out of that. Right. But it can yeah. be humbling for sure. For sure. And yeah. Do you think that, um, I don't think it's really a written goal of these military trainings, but over the years I've kind of seen that as, uh, as part of the training, they're just, they're, uh, they're getting pushed. They're getting challenged in a new environment. And, uh, and, and we also try and make it fun. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys are constantly training constantly. I mean, they might be at a training with us and in a month they're in a combat zone. So sure. we try and make it fun and give them some downtime and let them enjoy being in the Tetons. And I think it's pretty cool that these men and women get to come and, and, and train with us on public land Yeah, here in Wyoming. That's magnificent. Um, how about, have you noticed any coping mechanisms that these teams have for being in that sort of new environment? You know, like I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe going to a new snow environment where I'm not used to the snowpack. And, and so like any correlations you can make to how they adapted to being in a new environment that maybe the recreational backcountry skier might use if they're going to a new place? Well, one of the, that, that is one of the, the things we work on with these teams is we try and remove the, the public forecast out of the mix mm -hmm. because when they're, it's all well and good if you're in the Tetons and you can go to the bridge or Teton forecast, but these folks are getting deployed places where there's, there's no forecast. So, um, we work on tricks for and techniques to try and get up to speed on the snowpack in um in remote locations where the the forecast doesn't exist um so lots of quick pits lots of probing um less time in more pits rather than standing in one snow pit for an hour um one of the things i've noticed with these guys is they are i think it comes from you know, being, being on the move training day in and day out deployments and, and often not knowing when their next deployment's coming. Um, their plans change a lot. They are really good at, um, being where they are, mm -hmm. you know, being, having their gear ready to go, showing up where they need to show up on time. They're, they are super organized and, uh, they're, they're pretty good at hanging tight uh, stand by to stand by and then being ready to go when it's, when it's time to move. Right. And I have to imagine part of that is just being a really cohesive unit, right? Like there's, there's so there's constant change in their environment and, and the only constant is that they're with each other. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They've got, a, they've got good camaraderie and, um, and you can tell, yeah, they've worked together. Um, and that's been, that's been another really fun part of these is that as we get to know these teams, they come back year after year and they, they bring you into the fold mm -hmm. and, um, you feel like for that time being, you're, you're part of the team. Mm -hmm. 
any lessons that you've seen in in debriefing actions you know in, in the fire world we call it after action review and i think they probably use the same in the military and and i think there's some correlation into um, effective after action reviews and debriefing into the snow and avalanche realm whether it's in a professional setting or in a recreational setting well it's a it is a big part of their process you know they they call it an after action review and and it's it, it's just part of the process so you know, when you know when we finish a day in the field if we don't facilitate a a debrief or an after action review, they, they take that on their shoulders and, um, they do it day in and day out. And, uh, yeah, they're trying to do, you know, what went well, what went wrong, what can we do better? And I think one of the key things to that, it seems to me at least, is that we can error correct, right. For the next day, right. We we're, we're, critically looking at what we did well, what we could do better and then error correcting instead of, um, just assuming that we did well because nothing bad happened. Right. That's been a consistent theme is these military teams, they call them an after action review. I, you know, we call it a debrief, but, um, that that's part of their process for sure. They, they debrief their days. What was learned a, you know, a big part of that for them. Um, you know, when they're working with us, it may be an avalanche rescue scenario. It may just be, how did the the tour through the terrain go today. Um, but oftentimes for them, it's, it's, you know, how did the teamwork go? Mm. How was the communication? They've got different, um, you know, tasks delegated. And it seems like in these special operations teams, they're less of, they, I mean, they have ranks, but there's less of a, of a hierarchy when they're in the field. They're, mm. they're just working as a team and it's fully open for, the new guy to offer a concern. Um, so a lot of that debriefing is how the teamwork and communication go. Right. Obviously there might be certain skills that we're working on and we can, we can see what went well and you know, what can be approved, improved on with the skills. But, um, yeah, a big part of those debriefs is the communication. Yeah. Um, you know, and in that, the wicked learning environment of the, the snow and avalanche world, we're just, we're looking to pull, pull feedback out, even when we may not have gotten direct feedback from the snow on a given day. Right. That's the that's the trick about traveling in in avalanche train. I think is that we're we're not always getting feedback, good or bad, to our decisions. Right. And and something that you've you've we've talked about before we hit record a little bit is this concept of resulting and how it can be a a hard kind of tricky phenomenon in our progression throughout the backcountry, And so maybe you could talk a little bit about um, how you deal with that and thoughts on that. Well, the, yeah, this concept of resulting, I heard about it uh, through a book called by Annie Duke thinking in bets. And she was a professional poker player and talked about decision-making in a, you know, an uncertain world like poker and, uh, and resulting is, basically the idea of, you know, taking the outcome or the end result and linking that to the decision-making or the process. So if there was a good result, that means you did a good job. You made good decisions or a bad result, bad decisions, bad process. And 
that's not necessarily true, especially in a, in a wicked learning environment like the snow and avalanche world where we're not getting that constant, consistent feedback. Um, the, the, ex- the classic example that Annie Duke uses is the um, Super Bowl 49, the Seahawks and the Patriots. Seahawks are down by four points, 30 seconds in the game. They're on the two-yard line. The coach calls a, a short pass play, snap, Patriots intercept the ball, game over. And, uh, you know, the headlines around the country read, you know, worst call in Super Bowl history, worst moment ever. And, uh, you know, when the coach, Seahawks coach was being interviewed a few days later, his take was, well, you know, I'm willing to go so far as to say that was the worst result ever not necessarily the bad, the worst call. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if, if, if that play had resulted in a touchdown, it probably would have been considered to have been a good call. So, you know, I think in the snow and avalanche world, we can often get fooled into thinking great powder day. We come home happy, high five. And did we actually make good decisions? Did we have a good process leading up to that? And on a lot of days we may have, but that good outcome doesn't necessarily equal good decision-making and good process. And so what are some ways that we can error correct um, maybe the, the lack of feedback that we're getting? And maybe, maybe we're just kind of bringing it back to what we were talking about earlier is like, is debriefing the best tool for that? Or what do you, what do you think? Are there some other things that we can be doing? I, I think debriefing is one of the, one of the, very important tools. And, uh, you know, so in a recreational setting, I think having partners that, that are willing to make that part of the process, um, and, you know, willing to have an honest conversation at the end of the day. I mean, a lot of days we do make good decisions and, you know, we don't have to have a long drawn out debrief every single day, but, um, having partners that are willing to have a conversation and, uh, can be should be informal over a beer whatever you want it to be but in my mind what we're doing there is we're we're seeking that feedback we're trying to pull it out of the the day the snowpack when we may not we're not going to get it consistently every day um and obviously if you treat unintentionally trigger an avalanche or have you know a near miss or direct hit you're getting that feedback and hopefully you're going to try and pull some learning out of that. But there are all those days when we're not getting that feedback and there likely is some good learning to be had. You know, we're, did we get, did we make good decisions or did we just get away with it? Mm-hmm. So what are some specific questions that you ask your partners or, or discuss with your partners at the end of a ski day? Well, you know, I, I pull this morning, I pulled this up. We've got, um, we have a, this checklist that we use at AI on courses. And the third part of the checklist is your, your debrief. And then I also pulled up our, our PM form that we use on, on pro courses. And there's a, a similar debrief at the end of that, our debrief questions. They're, they're pretty closely related, but, um, you know, our, our backcountry checklist, the questions are any bad decisions today? Um, did we manage the terrain well? Did the conditions match, match the forecast and concerns for future tours? Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the, 
I think sometimes it's, uh, you know, if you, if you didn't get any direct feedback from the snowpack, you just got to be honest with yourself as to whether, did you really, did you feel really good about that, that terrain that you, that you chose today? And, um, one of the techniques they use, use in Canada and guide service world up there is just, it's, um, you know, what, do, what do all the other guides think? Mm-hmm. Do they think that was appropriate terrain for the conditions? And you just have to, if you're not getting that direct feedback, you just have to be as honest as honest with yourself as you can. Sometimes it's that just gut little in, intuitive feeling that you maybe didn't quite feel good about one decision here or there and maybe that's the time to bring that up huh or hopefully you brought it up in the field but yeah if you didn't yeah maybe it's the time to bring it up in a debrief yeah for sure hopefully you brought it up in the field but if you you know so often we can end up yeah we can end up maybe pushing it a little too far and um yeah, there's no bad, no bad, bad outcome, no near miss, not, not even any feedback that, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the error correction we're talking about is mm-hmm. if you're finding yourself, um, having a bad feeling about where you were yesterday, talk about it. How, how'd we end up there? What did, did, were we just ignorant of the problem? Did we, did we have bad, poor communication? Um, what led us to find ourselves in that spot and that and that's the whole goal of that debrief is try and error correct have better communication in the future or in that example maybe it was just a a a gap in experience level right if i don't have as much experience as you and we go out and i don't feel comfortable with something maybe that's the time when you explain to me why you felt comfortable with that decision and we can kind of like gain some a better level of of understanding through those decisions, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you just, you're just using that rather informal powwow at the end of the day to just try and pull some, pull some feedback and some learning out of your days. And I think that a focused, having that as a focused part of your process is going to be a much quicker, um, ramp up to gaining experience and expertise mm-hmm. than to just go back country skiing day after day after day. Right. Um, I think, I think checklists are great. And I think, I think the takeaway here for me at least is that no matter what format you follow, the importance is just having a discussion at the end of the day. Right. And there's a lot of great formats out there that help guide the discussion but make make the time for that make it part of your practice huh yeah part of the yeah part of the process Mm -hmm. yeah i agree so don you mentioned earlier about one thing that makes a good partner or partners uh, is the willingness to have a debrief right what are some other attributes that you look for in a good ski partner or riding partner well more and more, I think about that, you know, that idea that somebody you're going into the backcountry with is, is a partner, not just a, you know, if I'm just going skiing with, with friends, quote unquote, I mean, that's going to drive the terrain choice of the day. I mean, if mm-hmm. it's just a, let's get out with a, with a crew of friends, then we're going to stick to really simple terrain where we don't have to make a lot of decisions, but you know, those true partners are the ones that you've, you know, the partnership develops and, and a lot of it is 
a big part of it is, is communication that you're on the same page and, you know, you're, it's easy for you to voice a concern, voice your plan at the beginning part of the day and, and that they're willing to take part in that, that process of communication. Um, there's obviously the, the technical skills, you know, if, if I'm going, my, I want to know my partner can, can dig me out if I get buried is actually carrying the right, the right gear is prepared for that day. And, uh, you know, so that those skills are skills are sharp and, uh, that common language is important. So that if I'm voicing a concern about the snowpack, I have a, a pretty good idea that my partners can understand what I'm talking about there. And, uh, and I think the other is just a similar level of, of risk, risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on dissent within within partners or within groups and and how does that play out in your personal and professional role because sometimes I feel like maybe I can be too agreeable or I can have partners that are too agreeable to the decisions that we're making and and it can maybe be healthy to have some dissent. Yeah, I think that's a great great point and uh there was a quote I heard recently from Colin Powell had to do with, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, advice that always agrees with your point of view is really not worth much. So there's a, I think there's a, there's a fine line, you know, if somebody's just constantly, I guess, disagreeing with you, I mean, that can be challenging and, um, and difficult, but yeah, I think I, I want a partner or a coworker that is is very willing to offer a, a offer a different opinion and mm-hmm. dissent from from my opinion. Um, you know, we all have blind spots. We all miss things, and um, that that's the whole point of this process we've been talking about. The morning plan is, you know, first and foremost, you're hoping that somebody will offer that dissenting view at that point in time uh if they feel we're making a bad choice in in our terrain selection for the day so hopefully we've got some time to even error correct before we head out into the field Mm -hmm. and then similarly yeah once i get out into the field i i really hope you know i want partners that are willing to openly offer their opinion especially when it when it differs from what i'm thinking sure like you said, we all have blind spots and it's nice to have lots of eyes in the field. Yeah. Yeah. So Don, I think, um, most people would say they, you know, if they can spell avalanche, maybe they know to only expose one person to an avalanche prone slope at a time. I've heard people say they feel more comfortable spacing out on the skin track. I've heard people say ski really light over that rollover. Right. This is all kind of terrain management, safe travel techniques. Um, easy in theory, a little bit harder to implement in in the field. Any thoughts on travel techniques in the backcountry environment? Yeah, I mean, it's something I've thought about, about a lot and have been thinking about more lately. And even stepping back from safe travel techniques, I've been thinking about, you know, identifying avalanche terrain and nine times out of 10, our skiing and or riding skills, we can, we progress pretty quickly. And you know, even an intermediate skier, especially with gear we've got these days can just quickly get out into advanced avalanche terrain. So 
it's a simple concept. I heard my, my good friend, John Fitzgerald use the term, you know, you got to look at that terrain with skiers, eyeballs and avalanche eyeballs. And, you know, you look at a piece of terrain with skiers, eyeballs, and it's, it's moderate ski terrain, especially nice powder, but that same moderate ski terrain can often be advanced avalanche terrain, you know, the, as an intermediate or especially advanced skier, um, we want to ride in, in avalanche terrain. So I find that dichotomy to be, you know, it's one of the challenges, you know, where we want to ski and ride and have the most fun is often the, the most prone avalanche terrain. So we got to, we got to look at it with, with both sets of eyes. And then, yeah, we talk a lot about safe travel techniques, the, the skiing one at a time, um, spacing out on slopes and, those those are great concepts and I, we want to they're they they should be part of your process but uh they're easy in you know in a big picture view but doing them well in the field is is more challenging um it's all well and good to ski one at a time but if we're if we're skiing that slope one at a time pulling out at the bottom of the slope and then skiing down on top of the next gear that skiing one at a time didn't do us much good at all so that's one of the places where I find myself being um, kind of ruthless self-assessment and how I'm doing on my, my safe travel techniques day in and day out and trying to communicate that with my, with my partners. Um, and, and I, I find still to this day, there's the, you know, there's days when um, I feel like I could do a better job in how I, and how I manage that terrain. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it's a, it's a it's a simple um, concept in theory, but it, much more difficult to implement it well in the field. Right. Yeah. When I hear you talking about that, it 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 makes me think of just general rules of engagement. Right. There are certain things that we should do every time we go into the backcountry with our partner, skiing a slope one at a time, being one of them, stopping in a safe area that's out of the runout. Um, I I've been thinking lately about how that can't be our only margin of safety is our safe travel techniques, right? This is, this is kind of like the thing that we do no matter what, just like we buckle up our seatbelt every time we drive in the car. Like we're not going to drive in a, you know, in a more dangerous way just because we have our seatbelt buckled. Right. Yeah. That's spot on. Um, and I feel that's often one of the most common misperceptions, um, is using using the safe travel techniques as a as a mitigation or a reason to ski that slope. You know, it's it, it, the classic, and I, and I've done this myself in the past where mm-hmm. you, you approach a slope, you've got you don't love the condition. There's something that, that got the hackles up, and well, we'll we'll space ourselves out. So you're you're trying to mitigate the problem through your travel technique as opposed to. I feel comfortable. I've, I've done, I've gone through the process and this terrain feels appropriate for the, for the conditions. I feel comfortable moving into this terrain and then we're going to use those safe travel techniques to help, help mitigate the risk if we made a mistake in our assessment. Sure. So yeah, that's one of the most common, I'd say misperceptions about the, the whole idea of the safe travel techniques. Right. And I brought up that example kind of leading into this question, ski really light over that rollover. I, I've heard people say that I've probably said it. And it's like, if that is your margin of safety of like, 
okay, yeah, just ski really light. Like you shouldn't be there, right? Or you, or you should choose, choose some safer terrain if that's your thought process. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're relying on these travel techniques as you, as your as your margin of safety, then you then you've got really thin margin. Mm-hmm. And for me, for the most part, I. 99.9% of the time I'm going to want a, a wider margin than that. Right. Yeah. And that comes about through terrain, terrain choices. Yeah. Terrain. Right. For sure. Terrain's um, king. Yeah. You know, the other, boy, I heard this a couple of years ago. Um, Evelyn down at the Utah avalanche center did a, a study where they, um, they found that with the travel techniques that were employed, that folks were very often effectively skiing solo. Mm-hmm. So that's, and that was another aha for me that, um, these travel techniques are hard to implement, mm-hmm. uh, in that you, yeah, obviously I, if we're skiing one at a time, I want to, I want to work my way down through that terrain and then get out of harm's way. But I also want to be close enough that I can then see my partner. I can, I can respond if my partner gets caught in an avalanche and vice versa. So to accomplish the task of getting out of harm's way, but also being close enough to know if something happens to my partner, just harder to implement in the field. And that's where I just, I'm ruthless with my self-assessment on how I'm doing right. with that. Yeah. One of the things that I, I caught from that talk to is like, how, like how fast are you going to be transitioning right from your, from the spot that you pull off? Like, are you, I don't know, like maybe it's worthwhile just having your skins in your hand, right? Like, again, we shouldn't be anticipating that. We should be making good decisions so that we're confident that we're not going to avalanche a slope. But maybe it's good practice to like have your pack off skins and hands like ready, rescue ready, right? Rescue ready. Yeah. Based, yeah. Ready for, for something to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do thinking about that? Yeah. So Don, thinking about traveling in the backcountry and gathering data, we kind of talked earlier about being in different environments and trying to um, get some baseline snowpack data. You know, like we talk about digging in the snow a lot to identify layers, and and I think most people will go into an avalanche course thinking that an outcome of the avalanche course is they're going to learn how to dig in the snow and interpret something, some sort of information. Um, so what do you look for when you're gathering snowpack data and what's your process? Well, my process involves I th- early on is I think of it more as, you know, tracking the season history. Mm. So early in the season, and I've got the f- good fortune that for a, usually for the first two thirds of the winter, I'm pretty based here in the Teton. So I'm based in one place, you know, early in the season, it's, it's just watching the snow fall and does it does it stick around if it does stick around where is it sticking around one of the big tools we use for that is just taking photographs of the the local terrain and that can help us remember you know that that early season snow that might end up being a problem later you know where what was the distribution what's Mm. what aspect and elevation was it on um you know and again then i can also uh, early season it's easy to dig a lot of pits when the snowpack's shallow, um, you know, here late December, we can still dig down to the ground pretty quickly because there's, um, you know, relatively shallow snowpack. So 
just confirming the distribution of those weak layers is fairly easy because we can dig quick pits. Um, but you know, really those pits right now are more fitting into the context of, you know, tracking the season history, understanding the problems and, um, you know, understanding where they are on a, on a level one avalanche course, for instance, we spend, uh, a lot of time standing in snow pits and it's common that people can think, Hey, we spent so much time on these snow pits. That's the silver bullet. I think people want snow pits to be a silver bullet and they, they can be, but they also have their limitations. And I I see that as one of the biggest, uh, I guess, misunderstandings is, you know, we spend, spend a lot of time in these pits. They must be the end all be all. Um, but forgetting that they, they come with limitations. Um, there was a there was a push at one point in one school of thought to not even teach snow pits on say a level one avalanche class because of how easy it is for folks to misinterpret the results. But you know we don't we don't fall into that category. We we would encourage folks we encourage folks to dig and dig often, but to remember the the limitations of the of the pits. One of the biggest. Uh, reasons we'd say to dig pits is i mean you might get the bullseye information that'll that'll turn you around and even a novice can recognize a ect block that falls off into your pit so why not dig and if you're finding those unstable results that can easily easily transfer over to choosing safer terrain Mm -hmm. one thing you mentioned earlier is spending less time in lots of pits as opposed to more time in one pit. And talk a little bit about why that is. Less time in more pits just allows you to to paint a paint a broader picture. And um, you know, once we once you've honed your pit skills, and I mean, that's another reason to just dig more often is you know just the physical process of digging that pit and cutting an ECT and things like that. Or just you're going to get a system. It's going to get easier more efficient and um you know and boy digging down identifying obvious weak layers and maybe doing something like an ect or a pst can go go pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and to be to do you know a handful of those across a day is just going to paint a better picture than spending an hour in one pit i think the you know the other part of it is is if 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 it's taking you an hour to dig a pit, then the likelihood that you're actually going to dig very often goes way down. Right. Well, and we all want to ride too. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of why we're out there. Yeah. So, um, maybe we get, we get a bigger, bigger picture over space, right? More spatial variability. Exactly. Yeah. And of course we're going, we, we have a process that we go through and this is a, we're targeting uncertainty. Right. We go out yeah. in the morning. We think we have this type of avalanche problem. We have some gaps in our knowledge and digging in the snow helps to fill in those gaps of knowledge. Right. For sure. Yeah. We've got a, uh, a famous in our world of avalanche classes here at AI. We've got this video of a, of an ECT that propagates and pops into the pit on the first tap. And, you know, it's a, it's an easy test to, to interpret. And, um, 
you know, on a, on that given day, I was out there south of Teton Pass that day, and we were also experiencing, you know, widespread collapsing and cracking. And that was a day when we really didn't need to dig a pit. It was, all the information was there. Mm -hmm. We did, we just dug a pit because it was it was interesting. Um, so you know, oftentimes when it's really unstable, you're getting you're getting that feedback right that bullseye information sure you know but it's also it's useful to dig on those days just to see what what your pit looks like and you know build that experience base um on the flip side i, I went i had to go digging this morning to remember what year it was but it was 2007 and i had an experience here on the west side of the tetons skiing up into darby canyon and uh we had a early season persistent week layer but i hadn't been into the much into the west side of the tetons and you know we toured in it, it's all big terrain in there we were touring underneath some avalanche slopes and kind of getting deeper up into the canyon and we decided to stop and dig a pit and i was digging and as i was digging down we experienced one of one of the largest collapses I've ever experienced in my life. And um, my partner and I looked up and I thought, I think we both thought there was the potential for a big avalanche to be coming down on top of us. And that, that was an example of a day in which I don't think we would have gotten that information until, um, until we stopped and dug a pit. Mm. It ended up, you know, we, we, we got the word out about that week layer and what we'd experienced in there. And there was actually a, um, an avalanche accident and a fatality, I believe on that same layer several weeks later. And that was a huge learning for me, both in terms of the, you know, difficulty we get fit, we, we face with these deeper persistent week layers and, but also, um, you know, dig pits. I'm looking for instability. I am, trying to find that unstable, unstable result that, you know, I might be aware of, or it might surprise me. And on that day, it surprised me. And I don't think we would have gotten that information without, without digging. Right. And not, not to muddy the waters, but I mean, we can oftentimes get false stable results too, especially when we're dealing with those deeper persistent layers. Right. And so looking at the snowpack structure is super important too. Like if we still have a weak structure and we're getting stable, test results doesn't necessarily mean it's stable right yeah ex exactly like the, the example i just referred to where I, we dig down and get a massive collapse mm -hmm. i mean that's that's good information right. and by all means that's one of the reasons we want to dig pits and like likewise that ectp that you know first tap and it popped into the into the pit pretty easy information to interpret not a lot of gray area but yeah nine times out of ten we're in that gray area especially with persistent weak layers that might be you know becoming less and less reactive so yeah that the context of the season history the avalanche problem you're dealing with what sort of avalanche activity is happening. And then that, that snow pit is just one piece of information that fits into that big, big picture. Right. Big. And, and that, that, that gray area with, with snow pits is, is the, where they become much more challenging and harder to interpret. Right. 
So an another gray area, we'll kind of shift gears here to another gray area. AI saw the need for a continuing education course for professionals, avalanche professionals who had previously taken the level three course and kind of the old paradigm of avalanche education um, to kind of catch up and be on par with the new pro two courses. Right. And so there's a, a pro two continuing education course that AI has offered. Um, and I think that's great that you guys saw the need for that. And, and I'm hoping to take it in the future. Um, what, if any, does the typical population look like of people, other recreationists that might be slipping through the cracks of the current avalanche education framework that continuing education course i think is going to be a a great course and mm -hmm. it's it's it speaks to the i think snow and avalanche professionals that just want to keep furthering their knowledge and, and um, we've got you know long time snow safety and forecasting and guiding folks taking that that class and um i think it's going to be great and it's going to be the participants learning from other participants, instructors learning from participants and, um, you know, just getting together for, for more training. And, um, yeah, as far as other, other categories of backcountry users that training is, is one piece of, of your, your experience base. And I think, you know, we learn certain skills and certain nuggets in a training that we can then apply as we go about the, our practice day in and day out. And, um, I, I think a lot of backcountry users approach their training in, in some ways as, you know, a level one is, you know, check done. And, you know, once I've done that training, I'm on to the next. And, you know, so we've started offering things like level one refreshers, level two refreshers. They're just, they're shorter, um, maybe an evening and a day in the field. And it is just, um, it's taken folks that, it, that may have taken a level one, five, seven, ten years ago, getting the rust off and, and just applying those skills underneath the, you know, the, the tutelage of a, of an instructor that, so that they can then go on and apply those skills a little bit more effectively in their daily, daily travels. Yeah. It seems like a great offering and just like, you know, uh, many of these skills are perishable, whether it's rescue skills or interpreting snowpack data or even identifying terrain features, right. That you might want to avoid. So that seems like a great way for people that have kind of and they're like oh yeah i should probably take another avalanche course maybe it's that's that's great a little less commitment a little less money maybe and you that's can just the brush idea. it up yeah mm -hmm. cool well don do you have any other other stories of close calls or significant lessons learned over your career the most recent close call i had was three or four years ago on a, on a hut trip to Canada out near outside of golden in the Esplanade range. And we, uh, we remotely triggered a, a, a D2 avalanche ran full track and we remotely triggered it from the Ridge. It took out some, some ski tracks from a previous run. So, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a significant near miss. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, 
I, I, I use the term near miss, but I've heard them called a, a free lesson or, a, or a, even a gift, you know, cause in that case, I mean, we came home with our tail between our legs, but, um, the reality of the matter is, is we got that direct feedback that we don't often get. Nobody got hurt. Nobody even came close to getting hurt. So for, really a free lesson or a gift is a good way to look at it. Um, you know, boy, a bunch of good learning came out of that for me. One first and foremost is, you know, just humility. Don't think you can fully understand that snowpack all the time. We actually were, we were aware of the problem. It was buried surface whore. Um, we communicated about it, but we just didn't communicate as effectively as we could have. Um, we did a few, we did some things well. We, we skied the lower angle terrain and avoided a steep wind loaded pocket. And then we ended up triggering that steep wind loaded pocket from, from above. But, you know, boy, the bottom line for me was, um, we, we, we had thin margin. Um, we had identified the problem. We had identified the problem before we even left the hut that morning or the, the potential for that problem. And I think the biggest, as far as that planning aspect, um, we could have done a better job communicating about that problem and, and what were, what were we going to do, you know, if that problem verified, Mm. you know, so, so we identified the possibility of buried surface floor in that terrain, but felt it was appropriate to go check it out. When we found that buried surface floor, we, we relied on some stability tests that didn't propagate and um, probably a wider margin would have been, Hey, if we identify that buried surface or let's, let's just get out of there and, and avoid that terrain on that given day. Like if it's there, let's get out of there. Not if it's reactive. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so I think just having more clear criteria in our communication for, for what we are going to do if we encountered that, that potential. Right. And, and has that changed the way you've operated since then? Yeah, that, that was, I mean, that's probably the biggest learning I pulled out of there was the, um, was the, the establishing that clear criteria. What's going to, what's, what's going to get our hackles up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the other, the other interesting part about that day was we skied two runs and then skinned as we were skinning along the ridge on our third run, we must have triggered that avalanche, but we didn't even know we had mm-hmm. triggered it. We skied down again. We avoided that steeper wind loaded pocket. We skied down another little bit lower angle piece of terrain, and we were just about to ski back to the hut. I mean, basically high fiving um, from what an awesome day of powder skiing we'd had. Just as we were pulling out of there, I happened to see that crown and re- and realized that the debris had come down and covered our tracks from the the first two runs. So as far as the the feet, we almost missed that feedback. Wow. Um, so I mean, as far as the resulting goes, if if I hadn't caught that crown out of the corner of my eye, I, I all we would have been doing is high fiving and talking about what a great day it was. We saw that little piece of feedback, a significant piece of feedback. And, uh, you know, our, our interpretation of our decision-making for the day was quite different. Yeah. Probably a good debrief at, at the end of that day. Huh? We had a good debrief back at the hut for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it pulled some good learning out of it. Right on.
Yeah. Well, Don, thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the show. And uh, it was a great chat with you this morning. Great chatting with you too. Thanks. Appreciate it. Cheers. I certainly hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. It was great sitting down with you, Don. Thanks for making the time. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. We're on the Tell a Friend program. If you want to go the extra mile, then please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to this this podcast on. It might be Spotify. It might be Apple Podcasts. It might be Stitcher Radio. Might be Castbox. I don't know. There's a bunch out there. Might be SoundCloud. SoundCloud is the host of this podcast's RSS feed. Not to get in the weeds here, but go ahead, rate and review the podcast. It does help us out to spread the word. If you have any feedback, please email me. You can email me at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. You can buy some swag, help support the show. You can see contributor bios. You can get links to other episodes. All good stuff. Many thanks to Mike T, who created the artwork for our podcast. Music today. At the beginning of the hour, we were listening to Chuckin' It by Sholin Dub. And that track was made possible through the Creative Commons license and was found at freemusicarchive.org. And taking us out of the hour is The Prophet by Grammatic, made possible through the permission of the artist. If you have a story to tell about a close call, about an accident, about maybe just good decision making in avalanche train, reach out. I'd love to help you share your story so that other people can learn from maybe a mistake, close call, accident. Reach out. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.